Of words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And today we have with us a special guest. Please, Jace, introduce yourself. Um, uh, you just did. I'm Jace. So glad to, to be included among you guys. Do you want and, more information? And you are a pastor? I'm a pastor at Poolsville Baptist Church in Maryland, up hanging out in Philly with you guys. And an Old Testament scholar. That is true. Yeah. Yep. That That's is one of my two favorite testaments. Excellent. <laughs> Mine as well, actually. That's my. That's I don't my have favorite. three. I don't count the uh, another testament. To, uh, uh, it's not one of my favorites. The Mormons. Uh, another testament to Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, Howard Marshall says we need to go beyond the Bible. So you know, we got the old, the new, and now we're still in it, right? There you go. We're li- we're living something. You, you know, you're something really. This is, has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But I, I was in New York yesterday and heard a talk by U.S.C. Klein, a levy who um, is an author and journalist, uh, really fascinating guy, wrote a award-winning book a couple years ago, like Dreamers. And it, it started the iconic picture. Well, this is, by the way, this we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day Wars, Six-Day War. And uh, he was speaking at something in New York that was commemorating that. And he, his most recent book, like Dreamers, is, a, is tracing the those paratroopers who, the iconic picture of the soldiers, at the Western Wall after, you know, during when they took over that part of Jerusalem during the Six Day War. And those paratroopers, some were secular Kubitzim and others were religious folks from the settlements. And it, it just talks about uh, many of those paratroopers turned out to be some of the leading people of both sides of both the left and peace movement in Israel and also the settler movement. So it was an interesting topic. One of the things he said, we have to, modern Israel has to make a choice. Is our God the God of the Old Testament, or well, not the Old Testament, but God of the Bible that does miracles? Is our God the God of the rabbis, who's kind of this distant God who we kind of study the effects and what it means to kind of live under or around the law? Or do we embrace the God of the mystics, who is a personal God? And it was really interesting. He tied it into the issue of the land, what we want to do, how we're going to address the Palestinian issue. And, and it, it's interesting to me sometimes as Christians, the different gods, you know, we call it the God, one God. But we kind of mix and match with the personal God. We we believe in the God of miracles, even though we don't tend to get them. And it's just an interesting Speak thing. Speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway, it just was an interesting thing to think about. I mean, obviously, um, there's a kind of the, the religious question in Israel is a very different one than those of us in declining Christian America. But it's still an interesting thing to ask. Amos Tversky, who we've talked about before, the... Daniel Kahneman's friend, they the Undoing Project documents their their work in psychology that shaped everything we done. I think Tversky was a uh, paratrooper while or something, and I, there's some. I think it was Tversky in as a plan. He was on his first like international flight or something, 
as a young man, and this is after the war, and it's about to land, and the woman next to him says, you look nervous. He's like, yeah, I've never landed this way. I always jumped out. In the <laughs> I only ever jumped out of the planes. I've never really landed in one. <laughs> you know, all kinds of people. You know, that's... Uh, so Jace is here for uh, this is a bullish episode. We, we unexpectedly a midweek one. A midweek we never do that. Right? Well, you know we're we're mixing it up. We did Friday yeah. night lights. We did a, our own Shabbat kind of uh, podcast. You we, have so much going on. That's why. I mean, you have you're you're all over the place. You're in New York. You're you're here. You're there. You're in New Jersey one day. The next day you're you're all over. Okay, you, you, real, you realize you're like an itinerant. You realize all the places that you just mentioned are all within an hour and a half of each other. <laughs> it's a long way. It's still, I mean, it's not, it's not nothing. It's a normal commute where I come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it's right. Just a no, commute to work from yeah, D.C. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, not, it's not nothing, though. I'm just saying. All right. All right very good. Well, anyway. Oh, I'm glad you guys let me tag along. I'm just hey, going to sit here and, and I listen no, all the time. So. You. We appreciate having you here. And uh, you just... Um, I was going to say more than tripled the IQ of this room. Oh, <laughs> I don't think that's true. I listen to you guys a lot, and then I have to re-listen to figure out what you were talking about. So uh, We never do re-listen because then we do, I'm sure we'd don't. be afraid to have to figure out what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. For the book. We may do that for the book. For the book. You know, Jace actually has a radio show called Faith Debates. Cool. It's on WFMD. MD. It's a, is there a podcast that goes with it? There is. There is an adjoining. So if you search Faith Debate in iTunes, right? You'll Faith Debates, it. you'll find it. So That's there cool. Go. There we go. Faith well, Debate, I, I, Frederick. I didn't even know that. I will listen to that. This weekend. They're I'm going to leave right now, God, because I'm not really interested in what yeah, we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, let's just, let's just I'm going to go right now. Hey, good seeing you. I want to go listen to you. <laughs> uh, actually, too, uh, they have a full preterist on this weekend, right? Uh, he calls himself, again, a robust preterist. So I don't know what the, that means exactly. So we'll find out. I, I look forward to talking with him. We're going to do four shows with him. Wow. See if he actually believes Jesus will come back in any way, shape, or form. So I don't know. Wow. Sounds interesting to me. So a, a preterist, a partial preterist would be somebody that if you're reading the Bible and thinking about the end of the world or the redeeming of creation, that when Jesus is talking about the you know, apocalyptic stuff and say Mark or Matthew, you know, this is what's going to happen and it's going to be better for you that, you know, you weren't born, some of you, all that, you know, the Olivet Discourse type of stuff, I guess. A partial press would say that that stuff's not really talking about the end of the world. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Right. Now, if... Their end of the world. Right. Their end of the world, right. Right. But most of them would say there's still, the Bible still talks about the ultimate end of all things and redemption of them in, in the Apostle Paul's writing, in the book of Revelation. But this guy, the robust preterist, mean, I've heard full preterists that say the whole thing already happened. Everything in Revelation, yeah. Apostle Paul, we're living it now. If that's the deal, I want my money back. <laughs> he, he definitely, I believe, thinks chapter 21, the, the last couple chapters are, are something that's already happened in some sense. Well, you mean the so, New Jerusalem's already here? Yep. I, I don't know yeah. exactly what that's going to look like. So I, I'm look at the to... infrastructure in this country, and then read those passages. Just look at the, <laughs> this. Just does no not way look like it's happened. Yeah. No, <laughs> but maybe it happened in Denmark. Is that the happiest country? Denmark, oh, maybe yeah. Denmark. The Scandinavian countries. Denmark, are always... maybe the New Jerusalem, and no one tell us about it. It might be the New Copenhagen, but it ain't the New Jerusalem. Oh no. Sorry. Anyway. So also, in other, before we get into our topic, which I'm quite excited about, I just want to say that Billy Bush is coming out back into public life. He's been to this retreat center, and one of the exercises he had to do was you take a pillow and a baseball bat, and you get your negative energy and behavior patterns, and you bash them and say they're negative. And he is, you know, he's trying to get back in the game. And you know what? Uh, 
you know, like I've said, I'm not saying Billy's a saint, but he, you know, Donald Trump got to be president, and this guy got an exile in public life. Right. You know what Stern said, though, today, which I totally agree with? He said, here's the problem, Billy Bush me. He's like, there are very few jobs in media where you just, all you have to do is not be offensive. Just don't say anything that offends anybody. Ryan Seacrest, I'm Billy Bush. You're the nice guy. You smile, you know. And you can't let women think that guys are creeps. You have to maintain the illusion. They can, like they look to you for decency. So once you kind of, he's like, you could be into chicanery, but you could, that stuff can't come out. So once you're that guy, now he can never get into the non-controversial media seat again. Maybe he, maybe he needs to be more controversial, not less. If yeah, is right. Not very nice. Very nice. And uh, it looks like, uh, yeah, and our president is making a nice tour to of the major. Well, he just left the Middle East to go to Israel. To go to, right. to, go to Israel. <laughs> that's right. The major. That's right. My favorite. And uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. And you know what? I will never. You know, I'll, I'll never do this, the the uh, Saudi sword dance again without thinking about him. Yeah, that was something. That was. Uh, yeah. It's like Bannon saying, "Hey, when you said there was a bunch of guys in white robes, this is what I, wasn't what I was thinking." <laughs> I'm usually not that uncomfortable in these scenes, but uh, oh. Oh, uh, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway. Well, Bill, you brought in a, a, an article to our attention by David Brooks. This is, I think, his newest column, right? Yeah, it was from this morning. Called The Alienated Mind. So tell us about it. Well, uh, he's working on off of a, um, what's the author's name that he is? Um, Yuval Levine. Yuval Levine, yeah. And kind of doing an analysis of uh, what actually um, the alienated mind, what it looks like in culture, in other words, why populist movements are not sustainable. Uh, and he offers up some suggestions on how do we, how do we respond to the current alienation. He, uh, you know, briefly, Brooks sets up a little bit how we got here. And, you know, to David Brooks's fairness, he is critical of both sides. I mean, I think David Brooks, you know, used to be a voice of kind of the reasonable right, but given the, given the environment we live in, David Brooks seems like he's moved to a, kind of a position in the middle. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the center kind of changes, right? You, right. You, you find yourself... I think Bill Maher would say the same thing. And Bill Maher supported McCain for his first run for the presidency, and he would have seen himself as a centrist and libertarian on some issues. And now he identifies as a liberal, but but still will say things like he doesn't think the government should support the, any, the National of the Arts. And so he's... But like Bill Maher is looked, like, looked at as sort of a an icon of the left, but in some sense, I think it's the it's the structures that you know the, right. the landscape has shifted. I'm not that he hasn't moved. I'm certain not that Brooks. I mean, I, right? I think people who are healthy psychologically, which I mean, who the heck are they? But uh, if they existed, they would they, be. They get a little more tolerant of ambiguity and 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 messy thoughts the older they get. You know, so but so Brooks, some of it might be that too. Now you you're in Western Maryland, or you're actually I guess the Maryland's the kind of the first far suburbs of uh, of Baltimore. Is that what you are? I'm about 45 minutes outside of DC, so okay. I'm on the Potomac River. Okay, all right. So how how is your community dealing with what's the world as it is now? Because well, so, a lot of them probably work in this world. Oh yeah, the vast majority. I mean, we're a bedroom community to DC, so we everyone commutes in. Um, it's a nice ag reserve area where everyone is very, uh, you know, you've got. Half of the people are going to DC or on technology corridor right. or biopharmaceuticals or something. So, yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of people up there in in the political world. How are they? Well, I remember I'm in a Baptist church. So, well, anybody has any of the Trump supporters in your congregation 
question their support. Um, and if so, can you give us the names? Yes, the names. And <laughs> Read the them aloud. Wait, yeah. wait. Bill's getting his Twitter f- f- account open. Hang on. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I just I don't know the answer to that okay. question. I have I have not been. We we really kind of tried to stay out of okay. all of that. Sure, I understand. That. I I had lunch with one person and just questioned their view. Just asked questions, a couple of questions about them, and they ended up. And this is somebody in my congregation who had just started in my congregation who really just started screaming at me in the middle of a subway. Um, just because you asked sandwiches, questions. Just because I was asking questions about it. What did they scream? Was, um, how I was trying to hurt them and destroy them and how mean it was for me to question them. And Do you think maybe the first mistake was going to Subway for lunch? It's possible, yes, but I had lots of gift cards and I oh, needed okay. to get rid of those. Okay. All right. well, that, I, get, I like Subway. If you, get oh. extra, if you get extra roast beef, it works. It's okay. almost like half of what Wawa puts on. But. All, right. <laughs> All right, well, that's... Well, the gift cards, that's a pass. Right. So I had to go. Yeah, um, there you go. But I'll never go back there again because now it's, you know, such tainted memories. Yeah, but yes, yeah, <laughs> so most... triggered. <laughs> it's no longer a safe space. Yeah, it's not. It's, uh, my congregation is an interesting mix because we're a Baptist congregation. They're very conservative mm-hmm. um, politically, but we have a considerable amount of people on the other side as well. So I've, I've pretty much stayed clear of all of this. Yeah, which is, you have to. If you're going to be a pastor, you know, I found myself, I was much less outspoken when I was pastoring a church that was, you know, pretty much divided down the middle. I used to laugh every, ele- or not laugh, I used to say, but every co- every election we canceled each other out probably as a congregation. Yeah. But I will say there was one of the older members of my church who is a conservative Christian. He listens to, you know, the conservative old-time preachers on television and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came up to me, and I can't remember... It was either what I said, maybe, no, I guess it was during the prayer, because we I asked for a prayer of someone who's very close to me, who's um, who lost her health insurance, and she's in the middle of chemo. So, you know, it kind of put a face on the whole issue. And we just, during our open prayer request, I we prayed for her. And uh, he came up to me, he goes, I want to talk to you about your sermon. I go, okay. Or, I don't have a sermon, and he goes, I don't care what people think. I'm outspoken about my faith. And I'm outspoken about my politics. And so I, you know, I girded myself. I was ready. And he goes, it is unthinkable for me that in the United States of America, with all our resources and our strength, that there are people without health insurance in our country. And I was, you know, I was totally shocked. But here's a guy probably benefited from the GI Bill. You know, he fought, you know, to stop communism or fascism. I'm not sure which war he was in. You know, he benefited from... But being part of that greatest generation ever, benefited from, was able to have a house, put his kids through school and things like that. And, you know, it was interesting. He just, uh, unsolicited, uh, it struck me that he tied the two things together. He's just, he's the kind of Christianity that I grew up in, that kind of Bible Christianity. And, you know, you care for the poor. You care for people in need. And those of you who have, you give to those who don't have. Uh, that's just kind of a basic Christian. We've been promised the best health care. Everyone is going to have coverage. Be- lower premiums, better coverage. <laughs> so it's been promised. I mean, yeah. That's why and I listen to the show. He also promised our Middle Eastern partners great deals from some of our great military contractors so it's going to be a group on code you're all going to get it <laughs> if 10 of you buy the lockheed weapon systems you get 20 percent off there we go there's a deal 
Well, anyway, we got you were asking me to talk about the the books. You had the books uh, uh, editorial open. Why don't you read something a little more exact? Why don't you read, just uh, read just something? Read something. Read something. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's talking about. Uh, he quotes. I think he's quoting uh, Levin, quoting this guy Nisbet. He said, "A state of my alienation." Sociologist Robert Nisbet wrote. Oh, I just scrolled down by accident. Sorry. Uh, alienation. The uh, soci- sociologist Robert Nisman wrote, is a state of mind that can find a social or- order remote, incomprehensible, or fraudulent, beyond real hope or desire, inviting apathy, boredom, or even hostility. And then he just says, the alienated long for something that will smash the system or change their situation, but they have no actual plan or any means to develop it. They're, the alienated are a hodgepodge of disparate groups. They have no positive agenda beyond the sort of fake shiny objects Trump ran on. Build a wall. They offer up no governing class competent enough to get things done. Um, and then he talks about how Levin says alienation can sometimes make for a powerful organizing principle for an electoral coalition, but it does not make for a natural organizing principle for a governing coalition. So this is why when people said, and nobody in the political class, the culturally class, believed that people could switch from Sanders to Trump. Oh, nobody would do that. Well, yeah, if, if you're kind of part of this alienated class, that they both seemed like right. outsiders who really were critiquing the system. So like that, I mean, if you're an ideological person, that makes no sense to you. If you're a person that that is alienated, it feels like they're being left behind. Feels like, It's funny, my conversation a couple weeks with Rusty Reno, he said, you know, it's interesting that, look at the opioid crisis. When we relax permissions on drugs you know affluent people smoke a little weed they can they mellow out because they have the social capital and the restraints mm-hmm. and things like that but then in in middle america in the rust belt and stuff it turns into op- an opioid right. crisis and i think that often things that happen the global economy right drops prices creates economic economic opportunity for mostly the upper strata in society and so when you have a group of people that just feel numerous points they're left out or that social problems affect them disproportionately yeah they want to kind of throw a brick at the system well let's face it all the economic gains that started in and they would have happened anyway regardless of reagan gets more credit than he deserves but all those economic gains that started saint reagan (laughs) right uh and 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 during the clinton administration uh none of that really benefited none of it trickled down it benefited an elite group i mean are the percentage of that, you know, the amount of wealth held by a small percentage, it's higher, you know, that disparity is higher now in this country than it was in the aristocracy of, of the 19th century Europeans. And so we have this kind of myth of egalitarianism and quality, but really the system is, uh, you know, it's really biased against the average the person. The system is rigged. <laughs> but people continue, to, again, the masses continue to vote for people. Yeah. That continue to exploit them and use them. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, when I was reading this article, I kept thinking of the Simone Weil quote that religion is not the opiate of the masses. Revolution is the opiate hmm. of the masses. And so calling for change, that's part of what you just said. You know, it doesn't matter if it is a socialist pretending to be a Democrat from, uh, you know, from Vermont or a, or a hedonist Democrat pretending to be a Republican from Manhattan or the Queens, actually, is where it's originally from. It doesn't matter. The, the masses will be taken in by this revolution. And history points out that even if you're an effective revolutionary, uh, very seldom do revolutionaries uh, do a good job of uh, transitioning into governing folks. 
That's a little bit what's unique about the American experiment. Not all of them can do it. Patrick Henry couldn't do it. Samuel Adams couldn't do it. Um, John Hancock could not make the transition. But Adams, Jefferson, Washington, Franklin were able to do that. So that's part of we were... Franklin, syphilis and all. Uh, well, you know, just he just had a lot of love to share. Exactly. There's, he, they quote this article, Brooks quotes this article... He, for, I don't know where this is. From. It's the I don't know, some online publication, but it's um, called the Flight ninety three election. And the author says two thousand sixteen is this is written in September is the Flight ninety three election. Charge the cockpit or you die. You may die anyway. You are the leader of your party. You it may make it into the cockpit and not know how to fly or land the plane. There are no guarantees except one. If you don't try, death is certain. To compound the metaphor, a Hillary Clinton presidency is Russian roulette with a semi-auto. With Trump, at least you can spin the cylinder and take your chances. Well, we know what happens with that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the last scene of Deer Hunter. <laughs> that's, that's what happened with the Russian roulette. You play it long enough, you're going to lose. Uh, um, uh, you know, in terms of as you, you know, you you got in trouble by just trying to ask a critical question as a pastor to one of your parishioners. Uh, how has the post uh, election world affected the way you you, you pastor, or has, does it creep into your preaching in any way? Um, I don't think any more so than it did, did before. I, I deal with the issues that the text brings in, and right. then I just pull out uh, you know applicable things from both sides. But I definitely get this this alienation thing that you were talking. I remember having lunch with one of one of the people, and he very and very intelligent, um, owns several businesses. The only reason he was voting for Trump was because a brick was going through a window. That's all he wanted. He wanted just to mess up right. the system. And he was just tired of the way it was. So we can start over again in some sense. And I had that from a lot of people, a lot of good, some of my elders, like, I just don't know what else to do, but I want to start the system over. And if this is going to do it. Yeah. A reboot. Yeah. Give yeah. us a reboot. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think there is a certainly it was a percentage of the population. And, and what's interesting, and we've talked about this before. I mean, neither of us were Hillary Clinton supporters initially, you know, and, uh, it really was for me a matter of just choosing, you know, it was a vote against Trump as much as a vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. But the the system is really problematic. And I think, you know, the function of part of the function of this alienation includes, you know, uh, and Brooks at the beginning of the article is critical of the, you know, intellectual elite who treats uh, as if he doesn't use these words, but that there's nothing between the East Coast and the West Coast in terms of America. And uh, there's what's between the East Coast and the West Coast. <laughs> oh, wait, I was just in Michigan. Yeah, yeah there's Michigan, Ohio. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of our former trolls uh, used to accuse us of being elitist. But, he, you know, he went to a better undergraduate college than either you or I went to. Uh, you know, nothing personal. But Speak for us, Elizabeth. We used to beat the hell out of them in soccer. I, so I would put Messiah College up against Elizabethtown any day of the week. In you soccer. went to Messiah College? It, yeah, I, I, in oh. academics. We've had, right. We had Rhodes Scholars. Okay, never mind. Maybe I, better I than know. your. Maybe the. Maybe better than Shippensburg. Yeah, I just, I'm just a state school guy. That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just the first person from my family ever went to college. Elizabeth, that might be better than myself. See, I'm too. one of those alienated hillbillies. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. You're but just uh, a, you're, that, you're just a man from a town I'm, called Hope. I'm just a town. <laughs> you know, you know where Clinton was really from? Hope. Yeah. Oh, no, not really from Hot Clinton. Springs. But I think Mike Huffey said, "Wouldn't it sound as good?" I'm from a place called Hot Springs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he used that line more than a few times. Uh, no, but the whole the whole point being that um, 
No, I, I mean, I, I understand the fact. And uh, I mean, I uh, grew up around, you know, Trump land and people that are alien. Uh, ironically, people who've done pretty, who've done decently for themselves in the most part. Not the, mm-hmm. not that, you know, they haven't, compared to what's happened in, you know, the financial world and the tech world, of course, they haven't done nearly that good financially, but they're people who have been able to, you know, own their own home, uh, vacation the way they want to, and, uh, you know, at least help put their kids through college. But um, I, I think this is the, you know, it's what they watch. Uh, so much of this is how the world is viewed through multimedia. And uh, and so that, that kind of, it creates a certain kind of perception that... Um, is not is not true, you know. I remember G.K. Chesterton and uh, why he was against the theater. Um, not G. I'm sorry, not G.K. Chesterton. Uh, John Henry Newman was against the theater because it created emotions that and uh, experiences that were detached from reality. Uh, Plato sounds like Plato. Yeah, well, he probably. I'm, I'm sure he, he, that's very much what he got it from. They can both suck it on that point, as far as I'm concerned. Well, right. <laughs> I like the theater. Uh, well, you like. I mean, you're you are you are a product of this time. I don't mean that. That's in a negative way. Damn so. straight, penicillin movies. And you know what? Now they have this theater. I cannot go back to regular theaters because they have one of those lows where like every seat is a lounge chair and you're never, you know, all scrunched in. I could never go back to the old movie theaters. But I guess when I'm trying to say how much of our imagination and our attitudes and our opinions are experienced are shaped by the unreal. And, uh, and so it really dulls your senses and your intellect when it comes to really discerning, uh, well, who's telling me the truth? Um, Who's going to, who can really help me? It creates a kind of, you know, we are so, we put so much energy in being entertained that we don't, we're kind of dulled to what it takes to be a responsible democracy. Or for that matter, um, our people are choosing to be mildly entertained as opposed to work on their souls on Sunday morning. And these are good people, but that's just not, you know, work, you know, care for the soul, uh, the hard work of what it means to maintain a democracy. Frankly, it's just, um, People are too, I think, emotionally worn out, having not really done anything. It's funny. I was, um, I think, on PBS Friday. They were talking about on, on the Washington Week. They were talking about Roger Ailes. Somebody was saying like he sometimes would be in his office watching the news anchors, but with the volume turned down. He just wanted to see the image that was being cast. You know, like he was, he was so uh, concerned with perfecting the television, you know, doing good television. And I think that, that, you know, this is speaks to your point, like where television becomes a kind of theatric experience. And they do do good television. I always say it, Fox. Are liberals ruining the world? Maybe they aren't. Maybe they are. Who knows? Hannity's going to tell us the answer. <laughs> they create the false uh, dramatic, you know, suspense. Uh, did you have to speak? Did you have to see John Oliver on Sunday night? <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty yeah, remarkable. It's pretty amazing. Pretty remarkable. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, in terms of, uh, now, again, I grew up in the kind of Christianity that your church still kind of represents. And, uh, you know, one of the things that... Where haven't you grown up? You get to West Virginia with Jason. So it's, you know, that you can, you're a man of all seasons. It's actually, I'm just saying the same thing in different ways. That's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. It's like me. Oh, you're traveling all about. All right. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I'm, in, I'm on the man. border of Pennsylvania, so I jump across New Jersey, <laughs> jump back, back and forth, and take a train to New York once in a while. But, um, you know, one of the things that struck me about the kind of, and, I, and we mentioned Newman, but Newman described his Christianity that he grew up in was kind of a Bible Christianity. It wasn't particularly ideological. I mean, 
it believed, you know, it was creedal without a creed, you know, kind of, I mean, so in other words, we believed in Nicaea and Chalcedon without ever knowing what either of those things were. Yep. Uh, it believed the Bible was the word of God, but it it really believed in the new commandment that you love your neighbor as yourself. It, I always said that, you know, my grandmother was the most loving, giving, and forgiving person I ever knew. And she used to go around singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, if Jesus is her friend, I want to be his friend too. I mean, it was, and it was that kind of, kind of Christianity. I mean, it was in West Virginia, so it's not the most progressive place in the world. But I can imagine, and again, I was too young, but I can imagine the kind of Christianity I grew up, if someone said something racist out in the parking lot, you know, or used, you know, used a foul word, someone would say, now, John, we're church. That's not how we Christians are supposed to act. That part seems to have totally dropped out, unless you're talking about some sort of right-wing moral issue, okay? Or for that matter, the few left-wing issues that people care about, that's not Christian. But this appeal to, and that's just not how Christians talk or think, um, appealing to the basic decency and the basic love of God that's found in the forgiveness of sins in Christ, that was supposed to make you look at the world and look at each other differently. Yeah, well— I don't know if you asked a question there, but well, yes, I'm with you. That's how you're right. That's our church. Well, that's but see, that's a beautiful thing. So it seemed to me, but and by the way, we I've worshipped with Jace, and my wife said, and it was high praise. This church isn't really that Baptisty, and for her, that was high praise. <laughs> we pride ourselves in being Baptists that aren't Baptists. Yes. Yeah. So. Well, and she came out of a pretty rigid Christianity. Absolutely, so that's why, she did. So there's so, so, the, I, yeah. so the fact is, in some levels, then. Regardless of what's going on in the culture, it's your. Do you think your congregation be able to is able to transcend that? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, except the subway guy. Except the subway guy. Well, there's a few others that aren't, but yeah, <laughs> we, we've definitely lost a few because of this election. I would say. Um, yeah, which is, that, yeah, but that's that means you're probably just trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, and people hear things from the pulpit that. Are not being yeah, said. They, that, they project. I had yeah. one. I had one time someone leave. Well, it means you're doing the right thing, or that some other church has a better children's program or bigger screens or, yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that too. Right. We're at a Baptist church. So you just find the best one for this year and move to a different yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so true. <laughs> it's very sad. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I so on Sunday, uh, on I was listening to on being Chris Tippett show, and they had a Lindsay Stonebridge, who is a Hunter Arendt scholar, and she was talking about Arendt's essay. Um, lying in politics. And she's saying how that for Arendt, um, factual, factual truths are never compellingly true. The historian knows how vulnerable is the whole texture of facts in which we spend our lives. It's always in danger of being perforated by single lines or torn to shreds. She just talks about how facts are, you know, how we can wind up quickly in this kind of world, this post-truth, fake news kind of world we live in. And she's talking about what, what would it take to get beyond this? And she says, uh, it's, it's why history and a sense of myth were all important to Arendt, because it's what makes truth, because it's what, it's what, it's what makes truth meaningful to people together in a community. If you want a culture that's going to take on fake news and the political lie, I say as someone who teaches literature and history, what you need is a culture of the arts and humanity. What you need is more storytelling. What you need is more discourse. What you need is more imagination. What you need is more creation in that way and more of a sense of what it is that ties us to those words and ties us to those stories. And I think that's completely true. I think that, you know, Hume, which 
you know, a great student of human nature. Brent Hume. Brent Hume. Come on. I got advice for you. I mean, David Hume thought, you know, that, that the nature of human nature is such as you can give people ethical uh, lectures all you want. And it just it often hardens them. But if you, if you want to change people's views on indigenous people, then, you know, watch a movie like Dances with Wolves. I mean, it's an old example. But David Hume did not say watch Dances with Wolves. Well, no, that, 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 exactly. But no, I mean, but, but generally he thought it was narratives and sentiment and emotion and imagination that make us who we are. I mean, this is why. Look, I mean, Jesus tells a lot of stories, right? I mean, there's the, the prophets are full of a lot of dramatic and imaginative material. And I think that, that the, the possibility for renewed imagination is what I think is key to sort of getting out of the kind of alienation I think that Brooks talks about. Yeah, but I think we also have to get back to come let us reason together as well. It's just not that. Well, it's interesting, though. I, I would say people think they're reasoning together. Like, I mean, people would say that, I'm re- here's the facts. I think that... The the naked in I mean it's interesting. Arendt talks about what uh, the what Socrates is talking. About. It's funny because they said that after she got out of this refugee camp, that she's just wandering out of the French hills. Like this lady's like, what are you doing? <laughs> she's like, I'm thinking. I'm probably, but but it was a it was a sort of I thou in her head. And I think that come let us reason together. I absolutely agree. But but to get us to the point of reasoning together, people have to think. I mean, people, I think Paul Tripp says that people in crisis often don't need new information. They need imagination. Like, that, that, that they're stuck in many ways, and, and they can't see that there's a possibility beyond the prison they're living in, whether it's, like, emotional or intellectual or whatever. But I think that's true, and I think that it's, it's generally imaginative possibility that makes a different kind of discourse possible, that breaks the log jam. I think it's not... Because, you know, if we say, all right, let's reason together, but we're sort of in the alienated state, that's just going to lead to more alienation. But isn't part of that invitation not only to reason, but be, to be together? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, I think in terms of we need both imagination and reason, but we need to want to be together again. I mean, when I think what your congregation is weathering this is because they're committed to Christ, committed to each other. And I think that's, you know, you know it's interesting. We evaluate our churches, you and I were talking a little bit beforehand. But, you know, if they kind of love God and kind of love each other, um, that might not only be as good as it gets, but that might be enough. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's funny because uh, uh, this Arendt's guy was saying that she thinks totalitarianism, the seedbed for it, is this sense of loneliness, chronic loneliness. And, and you could be lonely and yet be in a densely populated area and seeing people all the time, but when you really feel alone, you know, and, and you feel, like, misunderstood and you feel like the, the system does not have anything to do with you. The culture does. I mean, and I think lots of groups feel that way and groups on the opposite ends of issues feel right, that way. And right. I think that, yeah, I mean that, that just the possibility of knowing that on a divine and human level <laughs> that you're not alone, it go speaks a long way to issues of alienation. Is, is Brueggemann the one uh, prophetic imagination? Yeah. 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 So I was thinking about it. You were saying all that. That's, that it's something to look forward to. There's some kind of a hope. The prophets aren't necessarily telling you realities. They're telling you imaginations. They're telling you what the future might look like. Yeah. Uh, read Brooks's article. Uh, we'll put a link up. I have a link on my Facebook page, but we'll also put a link up on the uh, New Persuasive Words site. As yeah. Well. And Great. Jace, thank you for joining. Thank us. you very much. Great sure. meeting you. Thanks for having me. Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song
try to 